Hello, welcome to Book Shambles, producer Trent again, and uh, don't worry, when we get back in the studio to record some new episodes in a few weeks, uh, Robin and Josie will record a heap of these intros, so you won't have to listen to me anymore after that. So that is something for everyone to look forward to. Just to say that we have a very special offer on this week's episode with our guest Simon Ings, where we have five copies of his brand new book, Stalin and the Scientists, to give away. So make sure you listen right to the end, and Robin will be giving you the details on how you can win that, as well as the box of books giveaways for our Patreon supporters. And uh, as usual, if you'd like to contribute to the show, uh, head to cosmicgenome.com slash shambles, and you'll find PayPal and Patreon buttons and everything you need, reading lists, past episodes. Uh, it's all there. Perfect. So here is this week's episode with Robin, Josie and Simon Ings. Uh, hello. Welcome to Josie and Robbie's Book Shambles. Hello. Today, Josie is finishing, to begin the show, All a the Flesh Which Remains in the Stone of a Peach. A sweet peach. Let's just hear what that sounds like, Josie. Yeah, I think you got it all good. Um, so we but I'm in a are... dilemma now because I've got the stone and I don't want to place it anywhere because I feel like that would. Yeah, they're they're saying just chuck it on the floor. No. There's a lovely um, Ivor Cutler uh, little story about a boy with a plum in his mouth. It literally has a plum. Uh, plum stone in his mouth and the, and the, the plum tree grows. Um, weirdly enough, the last time we were in this studio we were talking about Ivor Cutler with Nick Offerman. I often think about Ivor Cutler because I think of the lyric where the big Jim falls in the canal and he's going, help! And he's like, such a rich and sonorous voice. I maybe wonder if he'll call again. And then he's a like, help! He said, and with that voice that has all of the fathers of heavily built daughters from Troon to Aberfeldy shaking in their shoes... I oh, it's the most beautiful. Anyway, sorry. Hello. Well, I was lucky. I saw one of his last gigs, and most of the gig was him walking between where he'd put his notebook and his harmonium. And it was very intentional, and it was beautiful, mm. and no one was shouting, more poems and stories and songs. Everyone's going, we're enjoying the walking. <laughs> it was an absolute delight. We are joined uh, today by uh, Simon Ings, who is, writes non-fiction science books, and he also uh, is first uh, at well, many novels as well, and uh, also art editor of New Scientist. Hello. So, Lovely so, to be here. First question, Simon. Have you been to the George O'Keefe exhibition at the Tate Modern? I went. It's bloody great. I haven't. Yeah. Tell you what, there if you, you like seeing figuratively represented vaginas in art, you will love it. What? <laughs> They're meant to be vaginas? <laughs> I thought it was some kind of error. Do you know, I found it really interesting that what happened was she did all these things that I think were really sexual in a really empowered mm. way. And then everyone was like, how dare you? It's 1922. You're dirty. So she was like, no, no, you're, no, you're just reading into it. I'm going to do loads of blokey paintings of buildings. And then she did that. And then after a while, I guess she was just like, ah, you can't tell me what I am. And then just went back to... <laughs> it's a great <laughs> exhibition, and it's science-y, because it's flowers mm. and pelvis bones. And pelvis mm. bones, yeah. I yeah, love that's... the pelvis bones one. Sounds reasonable. Actually, we can we can work with that. Oh, it's very scientific. <laughs> I love the fit. I just got back from... It? Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, I got back from Ars Electronica, which is this big art and science festival in Linz, Austria, oh. where you had endless robots chiselling bits of Michelangelo's David but not in any complete way. So you know the scene in Alien Resurrection? Yeah. Kill me, please, kill me. It was like that, only with sculpture. Ha! Oh. It was very good. It was good fun. And where was this? I'm going there. Oh, it's, a, it's a big festival in, uh, in Austria. Oh, in so it was Linz. over, it was just up there yeah, for the festival. Yeah, but it's every September. They've been running for 37 years. Wow. Running a festival for 37 years. I'm surprised they haven't. Why didn't they invite it... us, Josie? We're the, the media liberal elite of London, I know, aren't we? And also, you're all sciencey and I'm all arsey. Yeah. We're perfect. Mm. Stay with me, kids. <laughs> right, okay. Well, I told is you it... he'd be a good guest. <laughs> is didn't it mainly a visual art festival, or is it? It's everything. It's concerts, it's public spectaculars, there's a lecture programme, there's an amazing um, animation uh, prize and festival. The first person who won it was um, the chap who created Pixar. What's his face? Oh. Thing of me. He's done well for himself, uh, hasn't he? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was all thanks to Ars Electronica that he made it in uh, I animation. love Europe so much. Lassiter. 
much. We, we haven't gone yet. Stop it now. <laughs> so the, that kind of brings us, uh, I suppose, the first question, which as someone who is writing, uh, starts off in, in uh, considered to be the cyberpunk genre, and then you've written non-fiction, but, uh, but The Eye, a very claimed book about The Eye, and you're an arts editor of New Scientist. Do you still see any remnants of this idea of the two cultures of... Yes, I do, and I strongly support the idea. Huh. I strongly support the idea that they, that we need two cultures, if not three or four or five, and they ought to be kept separate. And I love the idea that we spot and celebrate and encourage creativity in whatever it is we happen to do. But the idea that the creativity of uh, writing a concerto or writing a pop song or painting a picture or putting together a lab experiment that actually says something about the world rather than just confirming what you thought of in the first place, which is a really hard thing to do, that those acts of creativity are the same or they're somehow equivalent. It's just crazy. I think the world's bigger than that. And I think our world is bigger than that. And I think that artists and scientists, of course, we can, you know, people can talk to each other. But um, I don't honestly see how they how their meeting is nearly as interesting as their, their crashing like a couple of cars round a bend on a Welsh motorway. Uh, I like the idea of there being two cultures. Oh, God, fingers crossed. Something awful doesn't happen on a Welsh motorway when this goes out. Um, <laughs> I once made a joke about a tsunami for a pre-record for a show that then went out on, uh, I think it was Christmas Day. A radio show, <laughs> and it was one of those things with no link whatsoever. And then I remember ringing the producer and saying, "Have you?" And he went, "We haven't been able." To, and it's and everyone of course. And then yeah. people react as if not to know that this is clearly not recorded on the day, <laughs> and this is. Uh, but uh, that's a, well, that's so. Would you say? I'm just guessing here that if we want to talk about a division between science and art, that that art is predominantly a subjective reaction to the world and science is an attempt at an objective interpretation of the world? I think that will do. Uh, I wouldn't... I'd maybe say that art is about recording individual responses in a way that they can be communicated to other individuals. So the, the reality that you're describing or playing with or manipulating in whatever way you want... Um, becomes very personal to the person who's receiving it. Whereas science and um, uh, the humanities as well, the human sciences, if you like, the social sciences, are about coming up with ideas that we can all agree on in a public space. And I think there's a profound difference between the public and the private. And uh, the private doesn't really get expressed in a group. We're, we're different people at different times, and when we're in a group, we're behaving very differently to when we're on our own. I mean, I'm talking from the point of view of having written books, having written novels, so I'm very into the idea of privacy, because it is a very private, creative act as a reader, never mind as a writer. Um, and it's because you have such different ways of looking at the world. You know, both things are true, that I'm very, very angry about Brexit, and i got a bit of spinach stuck between my teeth. And I don't think there's a bit of the world that really encompasses both of those things at once. I don't think there can be. We need more than one culture to be able to cover both those truths and give them the same way. does a really good job of of being able to do a really big thing and then utterly puncture it with the trivial. Completely right, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I do. That's the only way to talk about big things with stand-up is to go, this, also I have yoghurt on me. Yeah, (laughs) that's exactly it. it? I was doing a show about the mind yesterday in, in Sheffield and, you know, every now and again, I would actually get on to proper research uh, in neuroscience, but then I would have to have something which involved me doing an impersonation of Brian Blessed or telling a story about slipping on some sick. And that, and people can go away and go, I like it, because sometimes I'm laughing, and then I go, oh, I'll probably concentrate a bit on this. Yeah. Oh, now he's an idiot again, isn't he? You know, I think you're dead right. I mean, Tom Wolfe's book, uh, Kingdom of... What is it? Kingdom of the Voice? His latest novel, anyway. Oh. Um, I wish I'd read it. Has got a huge amount of criticism thrown at it because it's supposed to be anti-science. And actually, it's not remotely anti-science. But what it does, as a novelist and as a comic writer of some, of some standing after a while, he's, um, he undercuts the science with Bathos in exactly that way. And he puts the science into a context. So is and it a novel? lot of reviewers have got very terribly sniffy. Huh. 
Is this the one that's about kind of Chomsky and Darwin? About Chomsky. It's but it's not, it's not a fictional novel, is it? It's a, it's a new journalism right. effort. Okay. So oh, yeah. it's, it's one of those hybrid efforts of his. So you would say that it's... Because I, I, I've read quite... Certainly in, in, in science... Uh, in fact, not just science. In fact, in most of the newspapers, there, there seems yeah. to have been the constant uh, uh, attacks that it doesn't understand what Chomsky's saying. It doesn't understand Darwin. So you don't... So I think you it having... understands them really well and doesn't run rings around them, obviously, but ha- has some fun with them. Mm. Plays with them, How shows them at odd angles and is wry about them and funny about them. But, of course, we're all supposed to be terribly serious in the science. But it comes back to what you said, I think, because people don't like the idea of something like these two people that they rely on as part of the structure and as part of their building blocks for the world being humanised in that way and being mucked around and being brought back down. And I think there is, like, when I think about what you were saying about, like, art being, you know, coming right down to the personal and stuff, like, it makes sense because a lot of my frustrations with trying to write things about politics stem from the fact that, like, you can't really get beyond the fact that it's you saying these things and it's it's an individual narrative that you're Mm. putting out there. And I think probably similarly with you talking about science on stage, it probably becomes frustrating after a while because you're like, also, I'm still this jerk guy. Mm. That's why I always say don't uh, believe anything I say. Huh. If anything interests you, look look it up because I don't know what I'm talking about. Huh. Is, but that's what I wonder about the Tom Wolfe thing, which is having not read it, but only read the criticisms, which is it appears that many people have taken it as a piece, a, a non-fiction examination of the ideas of Darwin and the linguistic ideas of Chomsky. So if you want to be playful with scientific ideas and you can go into the realms of of many of the writers that we we probably enjoy, whether it would be Kurt Vonnegut in Galapagos, whether it would be J.G. Ballard, whether, uh, you know, whoever it might be, playing around with those ideas, you can. But the moment that people are reading and believing that, well, actually, Chomsky's wrong because I read this in Tom Wolfe. And if, if that context is not understood by a mass of people, does that mean they'll read, uh, and it's called Kingdom of Speech, I think, we've got it behind us, um, that they'll read it believing that this is a uh, an academic book which is um, stripping apart these ideas? I think they will, and I think they have, and I think they always will, and I think whichever bit of culture you're operating in, you ought to suck it up. Right. <laughs> uh, we live in a world of... You know, seven billion clever, but but not universally perceptive clever monkeys. And uh, communication is going to be a little bit wobbly. And I don't think that uh, there's any special historical moment now where we have to be afraid that people don't understand the way the world ticks according to our latest scientific model, because I think that's been true for a very long time. And the other thing is is that a lot of the bits of our scientific model aren't particularly useful for large bits of our lives. And I don't really see a huge problem with not knowing how my mobile phone works. I don't really understand why that is a, a, a source of anxiety. But isn't this a different thing? Because this is the idea that you do have an idea how your mobile phone works and that it does have magic in it and it does send out cancer directly into your ear and is destroying your brain. Now that's to, So it's not so much yes. that it's the danger of not knowing, it's the danger of being utterly certain from the small... Pe- you know, I, yeah. I, I find... The my, idea of the post-factual, which yeah. of course is all over the place now. So, so I, I think um, it's fine to just go, I yeah. don't know, but it's the... Yeah. the, 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 like the I had to stop... I had a big fear of flying that I developed, which I think I'm getting over. And it was basically, I suddenly realised that I was like, oh, I don't know enough about this. And it seems improbable. I'll read that Erica should, Young. But it, well, seems, seem at all. it seems improbable that I, as a sophisticated little monkey, should be allowed to sit in a metal bird and fly around the world. It seems improbable to me. And suddenly I was like, Oh, have people dedicated their entire lives to aeronautical engineering? Oh, they have, haven't they? Oh, does it seem to work? Yes, it does. It's just not my area of expertise. <laughs> and I had to go, that doesn't mean that other people haven't put in, it, put in the work. And it's a similar thing. It's not entirely the same as jumping to conclusions, but it's the same thread of like, well, I couldn't, I don't understand this mobile phone, so I assume that nobody else has put in the effort. <laughs> it's yes. like, yeah. no, no, there are whole 
you know, uh, country-sized armies of people working on this for generations is just not you. Yeah. There is a <clears throat> an unfortunate a sort of dirty little secret behind the idea of being comfortable not knowing something, which is that you grant authority to other people yes. and you can trust in the canon. You yeah. can trust in the institutions. And when you stop trusting in, in the institutions, you end up with Donald Trump, yeah. essentially. You end up with a candidate who has lied so much that any attempt to respond to him in debate becomes the Donald Trump hour because you spend your whole time trying to answer the lies of Donald Trump. Yeah. So everything becomes Trump. And the moment that you get rid of any idea of authority, which is you know not something that... Uh, it's not a word that we are comfortable using anymore. But once we get rid of the idea of the canon and the authority, well... What do you put in its place? You suddenly lose all structure. It gets to this, you know, um, rather uncomfortably C.S. Lewis-like territory where the moment you stop believing in God, you start believing in everything. And I've spent my life not wanting to agree with C.S. Lewis. <laughs> and, you know, it's a horrible side of my own great age that I'm looking at this going, damn. <laughs> good news. Isn't it G.K. Chesterton? It is G.K. Chesterton. Brilliant. You haven't got to agree with Man, it was Thursday. It's fine. Close the wardrobe. Yeah. They all went and got... I read on Twitter yesterday, somebody put a quote about how C.S. Lewis went out and got pissed with J.R. Tolkien and G.K. Chesterton. And at the end of it, he was like, I'm quite convinced that you two were devilish, beastly men, but we've had a lot of fun together. <laughs> <laughs> Delightful. Um... Well, I... Tom, Tolkien and Lewis hung around quite a lot together, didn't they? They were part of the Inklings. Yeah, yeah. I know the yes. pub. Down used the pub. To go to the pub. But um, yeah. I think I, when I think about trusting, uh, it, you know, in certain political people or in certain scientific things, I have such a childish notion of the virtue of pursuing one thing. Do you know what I mean? So I'm yes. like, well, but scientists pursue that thing for the love of it, so I will trust them forever, you know, which is really naive, I think. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm like, no, there must be good people out there in our universities, you know. Well, it's, it's the problem, is it, of reading one book or one tweet and believing that that therefore gives a level of expertise. Yeah. And so the, the main thing is trying to, if you really want to know something, say, about climate change, you need to first of all learn that the best questions to ask. Mm, and yeah. then you can, because I, I think that's, that's, that's one of the, the most ridiculous debates to me. But we're not going to talk about that. Let's be positive. <laughs> um, now, I, uh, you carry with you a tremendous and exciting burden of uh, having been both uh, quite frequently compared to J.G. Ballard. And also, I believe The Guardian described you uh, as not so much J.G. Ballard, more like science fiction's Thomas Hardy. Yes! Which is great, because they're two of my favourite authors. (laughs) So, a very... The J.G. Ballard thing, first of all, now... Were you because I, I I was I've been rereading those interviews that he did for research the uh, that publication yeah, and yeah. and there's also a great book called if you don't know Extreme Metaphors which is a collection of of his kind of uh, his his greatest interviews over a mm. forty year period was J J Ballard an influence before you started writing was it something that surprised you that you might be linked um, it didn't surprise me that I was linked because I've seen the that the best minds of my generation disappear down an oubliette marked, hey, this passage looks a bit like J.G. Ballard. The thing about it is that his voice is so distinctive and it's deceptively simple. It is relatively easy to parody um, or imitate J.G. Ballard. There are a handful of linguistic and rhetorical tricks you can do and you can write J.G. You can learn how to write J.G. Ballard by the yard. The difference is that J.G. Ballard didn't write by the yard. He wrote to actually say something. And you have to dig yourself out of that pit and stop sounding like J.G. Ballard. And there's a friend of mine, uh, M. John Harrison, unbelievably good writer, brought me on when I was younger. Um, And we would occasionally write stories together. And we would sit down and just go, J.G. Ballard, and just cross sentences and paragraphs through because we would fall into that voice. So, yeah, absolutely an influence, but not an aspirational one. It's one you you have to work really hard not to fall into again and again and again. Uh, in a different medium, Blade Runner is the other one. Everyone of, my, uh, of our generation, Robin, just, just obsesses over Blade Runner. And you can't get Blade Runner out of your head, no matter how hard you try. Um, so, yeah, 
No. So Thomas what, what, Hardy was a lot of fun because I loved you, the obscure. I mean, I love Hardy. You? So I was very chuffed with that. I was thinking of Thomas Hardy the other day because I was thinking of the bit where in Jude the Obscure where she gets into bed with uh, the new husband and then she's so stressed out that she jumps out the window. <laughs> and I'm just of that as a We've thing. all been there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> very similar to a scene in Hobson's Choice, uh, which was running in the West End, but it isn't anymore. It's closed. Um, it's very good. But it was uh, the JG Bernard. What I find interesting is, uh, well, because you mentioned Blade Runner, yeah. the fiction of ideas and the fact that I'm not really sure if it ever transfers that well to cinema. Mm. So, for instance, I would say that there is uh, Blade Runner is a very interesting film uh, and it's a lot of fun to watch, but it doesn't have as much detail as Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep or Certainly Thinking true. of High Rise, the J.G. Ballard adaptation that's very recently done. And I personally, I really like Ben Wheatley. I didn't like it. I probably made the mistake of reading the book again just before going to see it, so I had my movie very clear in my head. But I thought that despite what might be a kind of illusory simplicity to the story of High Rise, I don't think the film managed to cover half of the ideas <laughs> no. that J.G. Ballard covers in, what, 140 pages. But the thing about Ballard is that what he's doing is he's creating structures so that you, as the reader, get to do work. And the moment you translate from one medium to another, depending on how good a filmmaker you are and what sort of filmmaker you are, you're picking certain things to realise as props. And one of the great criticisms of... Uh, one of the really intelligent criticisms of uh, Spielberg's filming of Empire of the Sun was that Ballard's empty swimming pool, in capitals, becomes just an empty swimming pool. Mm. And again with uh, Crash, when Cronenberg filmed the book Crash, it was a really, really intelligent film about why Crash isn't worth reading. It was the most tremendous negative taking apart of that book you can imagine. Obviously, it wasn't intended that way. I mean, you know, he wouldn't have... Yeah, Cronenberg's not the sort of chap to spend a year, two years, destroying something. He demolished that book incredibly well by just showing you all the gaps, all the emptinesses behind what Ballard was doing because Ballard is an incredible writer of a certain... of, of supernatural fiction, if you like, where the idea is that you create a half-open door and you don't have to bother describing what's beyond the door. All you need is to describe the door that's slightly ajar and the reader does a huge amount of work. And that's that, for me, is what Ballard is extraordinarily good at, and which is why he doesn't date. Because we're throwing things into that those books that we, mm. that we simply don't... that simply wouldn't have been packed in back in the 70s. And the other day I saw an exhibition at the uh, Architectural Association, and it had pictures of car shows next door to a cover of Crash... And these pictures, uh, uh, pamphlets from old car shows, had naked models spread across cars. And I'm looking at this going, my God, the, the bits that I, was t that I was taking as metaphor or as colour were verbatim. They were the documentary mm. bits. Whereas some of the details about the decay of the environment which I'm looking at as documentary, back in the 70s, might have been regarded, certainly according to the cover art on the original book, would have been seen strange and fantastical and all the rest of it. So the shift in how we read Ballard over 30 years is but just it's extraordinary. But it's sickening as well, because you can't properly appreciate the context and you never will be able to. Never. And, like, that's... <laughs> you know, when you think about all fiction that you love from the past, and you just... You can never... Like, I remember... I think we were saying this the other week about how I studied literature, but I didn't really appreciate or understand how little I knew historically, philosophically, scientifically, contextually around it. So I'd always be like, I feel like I'm not getting to grips with this because I know fuck all about the 18th century, <laughs> you know. But then even just to think that it's 30 years. And, and also because I was never alive in the 70s, 
my idea of it is such a strange little fantasy, you know? And it's mainly from sitcoms. And it's mainly, like, people thinking they've seen someone else wanking when actually they were just trying to pull the cork out of a bottle or something. (laughs) And brown bathrooms. All of those things. And the rubbish was never collected. The whole of the 70s, nowhere was there ever any rubbish collected. That upsets me a lot. I always get people going, days in London. the 70s, the union, the 70s, the unions. And I'm like, I think that your narrative may not be sympathetic to people without power. Oh, come on. W.C. Boggs just wanted to make some nice loos. And what happened? Bloody Kenneth Cope, always on strike, wasn't he? You know, W.C. Boggs. Who's W.C. Boggs? Is that Carry one? on at your convenience. That's the name of the company. Subtle, clever joke, Subtle you Boggs. see. Yes, Subtle. yes, yeah. you see. Yeah. The, um, but that's uh, with that, that context, I think. So I was thinking that with things like... I remember not liking... Uh, I went off surrealism because it was used so much in the advertising industry. And, yeah. and I thought, oh, whatever, here's another Dali. And then I went to this exhibition in Edinburgh. And it was put back into its context. And Dadaism. And you go, this isn't just going, what's that? Yeah, we just put that together as no. a joke. <laughs> it's not... It, it, and <laughs> that's what I think we lose, is people think you can just go and look at art and go, well, you take from it, whatever. But once you remove it from a lot of the context, things can still be beautiful. And things, you yeah. know, like I love Magritte. But the more yeah. I read about Magritte, the more I go, oh, I see, I didn't even notice that last yeah. time. The Surrealist Manifesto is like, we are so fucking angry at you for the First World War and we will never forgive you and we hate society. It's like yeah. the most righteous thing as a document. I've read it. I just wanted you guys to know. That is a great book, <laughs> by the way. That's off, uh, one of our many... Uh, the, the Penguin Book of, of Manifestos. Yeah. I don't know if you've got it. Mm. It's a collection of all the art manifestos. And some of them are so... I'll tell you what, those futurists... Mm. Mm, they're a bit alpha, weren't they? They love cars, they, 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 just, just a <laughs> We like war. We like the suppression of women. And we don't like pasta. Not at all. Really... OK, and only dogs on Thursdays. And on the fourth day of the week. What are you doing? It's like Deuteronomy all over again <laughs> <laughs> what where, where does your um well in terms of your writing do you think was there a point where you realized you this was definitely what you wanted to do that this was because you were what you're only in your, your mid-20s when your first novel came out i was out? in my mid-20s and i had been doing nothing until that point other than writing i um there was nothing else really other than writing that I wanted to do. Uh, and then I got published, and then I quickly realised the dreadful mistake I had made. Huh. And I've been frantically trying to do something more useful with my life ever since. But, yeah, now I always wanted to write, and I always wanted to write um, science fiction, actually, which is where I started uh, started in. Um, and it's very strange. I think there was a, a shift in gear in science fiction in about the 70s. And it wasn't, I've come to the conclusion it wasn't just because I'd reached a certain age. There was a moment in the 70s where the easy work had been done. The territory had largely been mapped for that particular way of looking at or dealing with the future and dealing with the world. And everything else since then has been a kind of infilling. And I've never quite lost my, not disappointment exactly, but my frustration that we need something else. That we need a new thing now. So at what point do you think you go, here are the, the authors that, you know, from all those years of uh, amazing stories yeah. and those other, you know, magazines which were partly inspired by the idea. What, what, what was it, uh, you know, it wasn't, there was a great tagline, but it was something like, uh, today's fiction is tomorrow's truth or tomorrow's yes. reality. And it was this, you know, this was all the amazing stories covers are this dream of when women in headscarves will be standing on Mars. And... So that, but th- so you have Asimov and you have Arthur C. Clarke and you have people like that uh, who don't necessarily, in a lot of ways, they're, they're interesting now, but they're not lauded in the way that someone like Philip K. Dick is, no, that's right. or you know the way that, that Ballard is, is treated. With you still find it in the science fiction section of the secondhand bookshops. You don't often find it in the classics or the modern classics section, but it's yeah, kind of beginning it's to move there. that way. So there. is there a, is there a work? You know, or, or a selection works where you think now, now this is the pinnacle of what we can do with that form of scientific imaginative fiction. I think for me, it becomes something else or it points a direction to some new thing with Frank Herbert. And Frank Herbert is one of the ugliest writers on the planet. <laughs> Few people will ever write in a more ugly fashion than Frank Herbert. Uh, Just as a digression, I remember reading one passage and thinking, I don't know why I'm reading something this awful. And then I carried on reading and I went, there are five people in a room. They're all talking. 
they all have different motivations. None of them like each other. And I know exactly what is going on. Huh. And I'm on the edge of my seat. Huh. And I don't care that it's ugly. He's doing something that doesn't get done elsewhere. And I'm sorry to be dense, but what's his big, uh, what's his big books? June. June. Of the June okay, uh, yeah. sequence. Um, the, that particular conversation is in Decide the Experiment, which was in an earlier novel. And then that technique gets put onto June. And suddenly you get into this thing which... Uh, uh, everyone is talking about now it's become the trendy term of world building now i have nothing to do with world building and i don't think novelists should have anything to do with world building because a novel should be about what changes not what is uh and that sounds like a, a deep moral statement uh and that's because it is <laughs> which i will defend to the death sir um, but i think all art should be about what changes well, yeah. because then it shows yeah. you what is yeah by doing that Unless, <laughs> unless you're George R. R. Martin, you've been a TV writer for 20, 30 years, however long, and you've finally got a property which needs to be unpacked in more than one medium. It needs to be a book, it needs to be a TV series, it needs to be a T-shirt, it needs to be a set of action figures, it needs to be a tea towel, whatever it happens to be. If you don't build that world, you're stuffed. You actually do have to build worlds. And I think there was that moment when, when Herbert was writing where he saw that it wasn't just necessary to explore this idea of playing with science in this, in this sort of faux naive way and just unpacking the unexpected consequences of crazy ideas, which is you know very sort of Phil Dick's approach. But once you've done that, you can actually start populating it you can actually start putting structures into it and start building worlds. And that's the moment where I think it became, for a short while, really exciting and also started to gum up and got dull. And you got volume seven of the Blah, you know, volume seven of the Blah trilogy. And it all starts to gum up because um, there aren't that many properties that you can do anything with. And I think Game of Thrones is probably the best you can do with that approach. So for me, it was Herbert. Mm. Herbert, who I like on many levels, but I think he he closed the door on science fiction as well as being quite a an odd and ugly and brilliant practitioner of it, if you like. So when um, cyberpunk kind of came in as 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 a as a title, as that, so where where would you say you sit in that? Because we've we've talked quite a lot before about well, Steve Aylett, for instance, yeah, who was seen as yeah, being part yeah, of very interesting yeah. new books, well, which we'll talk about on another podcast, which is a collection of writing about Steve Aylett, who I think is is still not really as as revered as as he should be, because I think he's, he's just he's in a, terms of his his right wit yeah. and a very very dark wit as well. It, that that <laughs> alone makes him worth reading as well as yeah. as, as the wonderful ideas. Yeah. And then obviously William Gibson is seen as the, as the so so when you when your first book came out 1992 yeah and that's that gets immediate this, this is that was punk. i was the i was the british bill gibson which made me run and hide in a cave for a while um the thing is that alfred bester writer of uh, demolished man stars my destination alfred bester drinks himself to death and it's left to an entire generation to take up where he left off and see where he was going with what he was doing. The Demolished Man is fantastic. I read that again it's... recently. If you've not, again, reckon book, as we put together the book list, I think The Demolished Man is... Can you is... give me a little pressy? Um, it, well, it, it is, again, it's quite, it's quite hard because it's... it is about, basically, it, it has that similarity to, I would say, something like um, Ubik in terms of the... Uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a noir, it's a thriller, it's a detective thriller in one way, yeah. Um, but it's also, in, in another way, it's also if you change the broom uh, brush and the handle, huh. is it still the same broom? So I suppose it has that element to it as well. But it's just this very thrilling, it's a chase. It's a chase thing, a chase story with an incredible number of ideas. It's a murder thriller where you're not entirely certain really of what the realities are. And I, I, is that and it, fair enough to kind it of... understood concision. It's a... It's a graphic novel where the, where the pictures are missing mm. it's wow. quite extraordinary I love and something that's concise that's my dream thing there are there are two kinds of science fiction there's the Kim Stanley Robinson kind of science fiction which is which is unfair on Stan because he writes different kinds of books believe it or not he's really good but there's a kind of approach that says okay we've got a, um, a space elevator uh, a beanstalk crashing onto the planet Mars and we will have several chapters detailing precisely how that will happen and how it will wrap around the planet and you get a firm idea of how 
that structure will collapse onto the surface of the planet Mars. Oh, thanks. And it will be three and a half chapters, and you will enjoy it. You absolutely will enjoy it. And then you have the Alfred Bester approach to science fiction, which is the beanstalk wrapped around the planet like a whip. And that's all you need. And for me, that's all you need. Yes. And there, there's, um, one of the great weaknesses of science fiction is also its great strength, which is its impatience. Come on, come on, let's have the next thing. Let's, 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 let's do this quickly and get on to the next thing. And it means that it can be terribly surface and fatuous and all the rest of it. But at the same time, that level of concision is just delicious. To be able to do the mile-long spaceship in a sentence and to make it stick and to make it live is a lovely thing to be able to do. Yeah. Uh, I that think sense of wonder comes from being really, really concise, I think. Because I think when I started Stars My Destination again, I suddenly thought this, the first chapter, is almost every uh, future shocks. Uh, of of 2000 AD, I'm sure mm. Alfred Bester must have been a big influence. I mean, they're, they're great. They're, it's not the same story, but from was, that opening yeah. point, that's the first frame yeah. uh, of if you never read Future Shocks, which Alan Moore, there's a collection of his Future Shocks. Oh, wow. Lots of interesting writers in the early days of 2000 AD. Their kind of science fiction, imaginative fiction version of Roald Dahl's Tales the Unexpected, oh, wow. and yeah. and they are yeah. that open. When I started reading that, I went, oh, this is just I'm, I'm seeing the frames now, and I'm seeing the artwork. Sorry, so yeah. yes, uh, we, we, I've, I've interrupted there. So yeah, no, you, you've become a, uh, you, you are now the new William Gibson. It's 1992 and, and you're beginning to feel the weight upon your shoulders. <laughs> I wrote after that um, a, a very long, it didn't get published as a long fantasy, thank goodness. It got published as a very short, truncated fantasy uh, based on um, uh, the life and work of Wyndham Lewis in a frantic attempt not to be the next Bill Gibson. I, I, I turned and did something completely different. Uh, came back for a couple of uh, science fiction books. What happens to me, I think, really, is that the science started to separate from the fiction and I got genuinely interested in the science. And so the fiction separated out and so I ended up writing, you know, um, big fat books about the 20th century that didn't have science fiction content because the stuff I was interested in was getting too big for the vehicle I was using. Mm. And that's, that is not because I was necessarily delivering on all cylinders, but I was just, you know, frantically squirrel-like eagerness for the world. I, I was trying to do too many things. And so uh, the science fiction eventually fell away uh, into different projects because I was um, chasing my own tail so much, I think. And it's given me a, this weird split career, which is great fun because not many people have, <laughs> mm. have been able to stand having that kind of split career between fiction and non-fiction. So your Wyndham Lewis book, yeah, does that have lots on Edith Sitwell on him then? Because um, that's my favourite. I saw it again. I can't remember where it romance? is. No, it's much worse than that, I think, <laughs> as far as I know. You'll be able to feel... Yeah. But where, where did I see it the other day? I th- oh, it, must have been, it must be up at the moment at the Tate Britain. Yeah. Uh, it's part of a little selection of stuff. And I think it, I, he did the painting where he then puts a shawl over her hands because they got... Isn't that right? Yeah. There's, there's this yeah. great... Yeah. She loved her hands, right? She didn't see herself as any kind of beauty, but she had lovely, long, bony hands. Yeah. He was and, uh, and he just had a fucking enough of her. Bloody hell. So, <laughs> her lovely, bony hands have a shawl over them, and she can't see it. You can't see her lovely hands. <laughs> so they hated each other, but they were... No, I think it was just... I think she was... I don't know. The story I, I heard I'm... is just she was a real pain to paint, and it, they, <laughs> they started to bicker quite a lot. And look at my lovely, bony hands. <laughs> <laughs> who's who's uh, the companion of Alice Toklas? I've forgotten her name. Uh, oh, uh, Gertrude uh, Stein. Gertrude Stein yeah. once said that Wyndham Lewis had the eyes of an unsuccessful rapist. Oh, which was just the most extraordinary line <laughs> to deliver about anybody. She described him as the measuring worm with the eyes of an unsuccessful rapist. So. And Alice went back into the kitchen and went, I'm just going to keep making this lovely film. Have you got the Alice B. Topless cookbook? What? Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. It took me ten years to find it. My lovely friend KP had wanted a copy for years. And, of course, by the oh, time I found it, I don't think she was really that interested anymore, but I kept every shop I went into. I would go, where's the Alice B. Topless cookbook? And what does she cook? It's been properly re- Printed. Oh, it's a wide variety of things, hmm. and you can imagine her sitting over there with her stroganoff, looking at Wyndham Lewis, thinking a Gertrude and me are not keen. <laughs> the um, so going back to so we'll probably have yeah. to jump almost because we've almost run out of time. No, we haven't. We've got enough time. This is good. Um, the uh, so we better quickly talk about your latest book, yeah, because um, that's probably yeah. what the publisher hoped. Um, <laughs> so it is. Um, uh, so the new one is Stalin and the Scientists. Yes, and. 
there is, of course, a fascinating, rich story of the danger of dogmatic science and and hope being brought together. So you will ignore evidence because it's not as good as the hope in terms of how you're going to make your beans magic. And so your this is what, country so what, is starving and you're in a panic and you think that you found a way to not have to deal with the bourgeois scientists who are politically unacceptable to your state and also are running things in such a way that you can't get a handle on them. And you think, I know the solution. We'll have a questionnaire and we'll ask people how well these agronomical ideas, agrobiological ideas like uh, uh, vernalisation and lots of other soil treatments and all the rest of it, we'll ask people on the communes how these things are doing. And these guys drown in paper. And what do you do when you get too many questionnaires and you have to do them? You tick, great, great, five stars, great, five stars, five stars, great. You send them back to the Commissar of Agriculture who says, brilliant, it's a bumper crop, we'll do even larger tests so you get even more questionnaires coming back, even more five-star reviews, at which point you say, we're going to roll this out over the country. And everyone talks about Trofim Lysenko, the famous charlatan who uh, came up with a lot of what proved to be and were very clearly proved at the time to be nonsensical ideas. And people talk about Trofim Lysenko, who's the poster boy, Stalin's poster boy for this kind of approach, as if he was personally responsible for the destruction, um, the, the damage done to Soviet agriculture. It's not true. He had virtually no effect. He was useless, but that's it. He was useless. Yeah. Not... Not toxic, useless. Personally, he was toxic. He was horrible. But, uh, but in terms of what he did, it, it just made no difference. The thing that really made a difference was this belief in, <laughs> we'd call it citizen science, which is terribly rude because a lot of citizen science works really well. But this was an early form uh, that was not, not recommended to do at home. Um, the, the questionnaire killed agriculture. Can I ask, yeah. what led you to writing about it? There's a... a, a neuropsychologist, uh, the first neuropsychologist, and he was also the first popular science writer. Uh, you can play about with that term, but for me he was the first popular science writer, the name of Alexander Luria, and he wrote Mind of a Nemonist, about the chap who could never forget anything, and as a consequence, um, it d- did him no good at all, because he couldn't associate things, because he couldn't forget enough for the associations to work, so he was in a terrible mess. And he also uh, edited uh, a book by a guy who was shot in the head during the Second World War uh, by the name of Zazetsky, called I'll Fight On. Uh, and this was someone whose executive functions survived so that he could have the intention of writing, but lower functions were destroyed so he could never see the left hand of objects and could never properly associate. And so basically he created this this amazing um, uh, genre of, of, of incredibly humane science writing, which, of course, we now go to Oliver Sacks. Oliver Sacks is very much in that tradition. Which and is the like, book I'm reading today, his, his autobiography. Oh, fantastic. It's great. It's a lovely it's cover as wonderful. well, isn't it? Just yeah. in there, no, it's just lovely. next to his motorbike, <laughs> in his leather thing, and just, you know... It's a, it's a really... Well, you uh, would almost think there was nothing left to say because he wrote so much and covered so much of his life in different uh, forms. There's a ton. And there's, it's there's a really delightful ton. book. Yeah. 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 So you have Luria, and he has, <laughs> he has a perfectly normal life. He has colleagues abroad, he has a good family life, his children love him, his wife loves him, his colleagues love him, he's never thrown into prison, um, he's never betrayed anyone, he's never been betrayed. So from a biographical point of view, there's very little to say. And um, so I was looking to do a biography of this chap because I liked him so much. And I found that I was trying to describe a normal life and say, no, 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 wait, it it looks normal, but it's really odd. And by doing that, I found myself have to explain why having a normal life was incredibly difficult under Stalin. So, of course, then you end up writing about the whole of Stalinist Russia and, you know, more and more things into the uh, mix. So it just became, it's a very, I mean, it's it's not a huge book. It's not a hugely long read, but it was a huge undertaking and it was never supposed to have got quite this out of hand to take him 50 years of the most horrific historical period of the 20th century in Europe. It's interesting that you talk about the 
misunderstandings which become when you're talking about 30 years and you know things that become a truth and I I, mean, I remember doing a thing with a radio show with, with Richard Dawkins and, and we ended up talking a little bit about Skinner and Skinner's box and he talked about his yeah. daughter you know the fact that he put his daughter in a box to experiment oh, and, yes. and as far and as I know <laughs> it's, it's been refuted by her she went no yes. it was like I was in the corner in a thing to stop me crawling away like many of us have had with a little <laughs> abacus on there and all sure. that kind of thing Absolutely. but, but the, yeah. you know and, and very often if someone particularly someone intelligent who's written wonderful books it's interesting to see that we are all victims of these things that become over a very short amount of time you know i mean do you have any particular ones where bugbears where you know when you're involved in the new scientist or when you're when you're reviewing yeah. books that you go oh right that's it that book's out now that's um, i i i can't because they have heralded <laughs> this misinformation yet again uh bf skinner is a big one uh, Skinner is a, is a now you've mentioned that I'm finding it hard to think of others because that's such a major misrepresentation of what was actually going on um, I suppose the um, the other which I'm I, I came across when I was working on Stalin and the scientists was this idea of putting people into political prison for uh, sorry into uh, mental hospital for political reasons and how that actually happened. And we talk about it as a governmental issue, that the Soviet government would put people into mental hospitals for political reasons. And that always seems to be enough, that the the psychologists rolled over and the politician, uh, the, the, the secret police were able to put people into mental hospital. Now, although that did happen, and had been happening ever since the Tsars, and was actually regarded as a better thing than getting sent to Siberia. Mm. It was a it was a way of actually lim- you would have a limited sentence and you would you would go to a hospital mm-hmm. and it was a way of not ending up in the prison system and being carted off to Archangel or whatever. Sure. When it happened during the nineteen sixties and the uh, the dissidents, it was the psychologists that were doing it. It wasn't the secret police. It happened on a handful of occasions, but it was largely the def the the medical definition of uh, schizophrenia in the Soviet Union was so limited and so unexplored because everyone had to follow a, this sort of, quote, Pavlovian, unquote, idea of psychology, which was really doctrinaire, really unsophisticated, like a real mallet to crack a nut. Um, because the psychologists were following this this sorry, the psychiatrists were following this idea and were never taught any psychology. They would throw everyone that came to them from the court system into mental hospital because it fitted the idea of schizophrenia. And so it's not just a political problem. It's much more a scientific problem. It's much more a medical problem. And then you say, well, we're never going to make that mistake again. And you go, what proportion of American school children are being treated with Ritalin? 10%. Ten percent. Bloody hell! <laughs> they are medicating ten percent of the infant population of their entire country. And you think, well, that can't possibly happen again. And then you find example after example after example after example. And this problem of where medicine sits throws up countless. You know, to answer your question. Uh, Rob uh, throws up countless examples of misrepresentation. We're always trying to say that, me- oh, medicine, it was so crazy last year. It's perfectly rational now. And it's like, no, I'm sorry. When the chap who invented frontal lobotomy died, his house was full of, his house within days was full of flowers sent by the people he treated. Not by the families, by the people he treated because he was so loved by people who had had the ice pick through the eye and it meant that they were no longer in mental hospitals beating their heads against stone walls. So you look at that and you think it's it's constant um, reinvention so that we always seem rational. Our, our place is always... Um, we're always living in a rational world and everyone else has to be irrational and it happens again and again and again and again. And it's why I wish, um, you know, we did more history of science really i think it's a, a, it would have a better idea of where our science is going and be a little bit more um humble it's in amazing. what we what, what we hope to achieve with it yeah. no no well, just that feeling run out of time okay.
the uh, but tell me no, 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 no we've got time for that feeling thing. when you're when I was about eight or nine years old where I suddenly was like oh people in the past were the same as people in the present they weren't stupider <laughs> they were the same and I was like <gasps> some of them were smellier no well, that was true. just down to that technology I get very sad when I realise that spying still goes on now I realised that in January of this year which is probably too late but I was very shocked I was like <gasps> The They're still doing is. it now. <laughs> with the political things you're involved with, you should probably never be called for jury service. Oh. So well done, you. I want desperately to be in a jury. Is that we, why or, you think I've never been called up? No, but I've never been called up either. But no. I accidentally once uh, subscribed to some kind of uh, extreme revolutionary Marxist magazine because I'd misunderstood what I was signing. And so that, sh- <laughs> that, that should cover me, I reckon. Certainly won't be allowed to join the Labour Party, I would imagine, the way things are going. <laughs> so... Um, Summings, thank you very much for coming in. The Simon and the Scientists is out now. It's Faber, isn't it? As far it's as I remember, from Faber. Faber, yes. and uh, I wanted to talk more about because your first book, just the, the the some of the ideas, and I want to talk. We'll do it again another time. The the uh, so uh, anyway, I should now thank all the people who uh, make this possible. But I'm not going to do. We don't do them all in one fell swoop because no. there's quite a lot of you. So today uh, we would like to thank thank Christopher Cates, Anthony Haywood. Jan or Yan? That's the only clue I have. So both Jan and Jan. There may be a Jan and a Yan. Jack Thomas, Paul Morris, Jonathan Reed, Graham Bryce, Anto Walsh, Martin Norris and Nick Jordan. Thank you so much for supporting this. It means the world to us. Thank you. And if you don't support us for our Patreon because you don't want to kind of do a subscription uh, thing, a regular thing, we also have now added a PayPal button as well. So if you just think, oh yeah, I've got a spare £2.73, we'll have it. But also, if you don't, please just enjoy our content Oh, forever. don't encourage them to have our lovely free gifts. <laughs> but you're right, you but can have it free whenever you want. Also, if you do like it, um, you could leave us a review on iTunes. We'd be so grateful. Thank you. But if you don't like it, don't bother. There's yeah, no why, are you even listen- why have you listened this far, you <laughs> idiot? What an idiot. You're the fool, not us. Yeah, but you stop <laughs> writing now, actually. Thank you very much and goodbye. Faber have given us five copies of Simon's new book, so if you want to win a copy, just tweet this week using the hashtag BookShambles, and we'll randomly pick five winners by next week's episode. So we have five copies of Simon Ing's book to give away, so just use the hashtag BookShambles, and we'll randomly pick five winners after this week's episode. Every single week, I will give a uh, a bag of books away to one of the people who supports us via Patreon. And we have done a random system. Uh, Rebecca Hilda, you have won a bag of books. And there's loads. I I think there's a Richard Yates in there, probably Easter Parade. There's probably a Philip K. Dick in there. It's a big book uh, by Nick Lane about genetics. So there might even be an evolutionary book there as well. It's a book about the history of the smile in painting and other places. So lots of different things. And there'll probably be uh, various bits of Philip K. Dick and Kurt Vonnegut and other things that will be given away. So Rebecca Hilda, you will be receiving some books very, very soon. So, Rebecca Hilda, you have won a bag of books. And if you just tweet us uh, at our Twitter address, at Cosmic Genome, or you can do it via email at cosmicgenome.com slash contact and uh, give us your address, and we will send you that bag. Probably place it in a box of books. Thanks. Bye. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 